So what we've been doing for some time now is we've been making our way chronologically uh, through the Old Testament. We kind of stopped at Sinai and we looked more systematically at the Old Covenant. We looked at what the Old Covenant is. We looked at uh, the different types of laws in the Old Covenant. We spent some time looking at the civil laws of ancient Israel. And, and we spent quite a bit of time looking at the various ceremonies, the physical tabernacle itself, the priests, their garments, their work the Old Covenant calendar, all this stuff. And then basically when the Israelites left Sinai, what we have been doing is basically working chronologically through the narrative, following the Israelites as they leave Sinai on their way to the Promised Land. So we've been skipping over various sections that we've already sort of thematically covered um, in, the, in the systematic Old Covenant Series. So we were looking at Baal worship at Peor in Numbers 25 last Sunday evening. And then we see in chapter 26 of Numbers a census and then a civil ruling about the daughters of Zelophehad in the beginning of 27. We're skipping those because we're not so much working verse by verse all the way through Numbers. What we're doing is we're working chronologically through the events. Since we've already covered civil law and whatnot, that's why we're passing over chapter 26 and the beginning of 27. And the next sort of major event in the narrative after the Balaam narrative where he had been hired to curse Israel but the Lord turned it for a blessing and then Balaam finds a way, the devious uh, wicked man that he is, finds a way anyway to collect on the reward that Balak offered him for bringing harm upon the Israelites by suggesting that they seduce the Israelite men using the Moabite and Midianite women as essentially bait in a trap for them at the beginning of chapter 25. The next sort of major event after that in the narrative as it unfolds chronologically is this section that I just read to you, Numbers 27, verses 12 to 23. And in Numbers 27, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. He's to go up there and he's to look upon Canaan. He's to look upon the promised land. But then the Lord says, When you have seen it, verse 13, you also shall be gathered to your people, which is an idiom for death, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. And this is a reference back to the events of Numbers chapter 20, particularly verses 2 to 13, where Moses fails to uphold the Lord as holy before the eyes of the people. So the presenting issue in this passage, Numbers 27, 12 to 23, is the impending death of Moses, that now it is time for him to be gathered to his people, and what will happen to the people of Israel after Moses' death, particularly with respect to the leadership of the people. Who is going to lead the people of Israel after Moses dies? Who will be their shepherd? After all, Moses has been their shepherd thus far. This is the assumption of verse 17, where Moses 
well, in verse 16, Moses says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. Why should the Lord appoint a man? That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. The implication here is that Moses has been the shepherd of these people. And now that Moses is going to die, he's concerned that the Israelites may be like sheep without a shepherd. He's concerned that the people of Israel may have no one to shepherd them. Let's just be, be, let's just review Moses shepherding. Just a little cursory overview here. You remember that Moses was raised in Egypt. And he was raised actually in, in Pharaoh's household, wasn't he? Instructed in the Egyptian law and Egyptian customs and Egyptian religion and whatnot. But it seems that he had an understanding that he himself was a Hebrew. For one day he went out and he saw an Egyptian really ruthlessly beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses looked this way and that way and killed the Egyptian, disposed of the body. And he thought that no one knew what had happened. But then he went out a little while later and saw two Hebrews fighting. He said, hey, your kinsmen, why are you fighting like this? And they said, oh, are you going to kill us the way you killed the Egyptian? So he realized that his secret, so to speak, was not really a secret. He ended up leaving and going to Midian. But, but just, let's just pause there. If you were a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian, I'm not saying Moses was right, but if you were a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster, and you saw Moses the Hebrew coming out of Pharaoh's house, and he intervenes and kills the man and buries him, gets rid of the body. Look, I'm not justifying that action because I think it, I think Moses was not acting in an appropriate uh, official capacity in that sense, and it was more an act of vigilante justice than it was the proper bearing of the sword by the government officials. But if I can say it in a certain way, his heart was in the right place. All right, you know, if you know what I mean, that there was, there was something I think good and right about recognizing the evil that was happening. And look at where Moses' heart is right from that point, that he wants to stand up for his people, that he wants to defend those who are being victimized by the Egyptians. That he, he can't stand to see this injustice done against the people of Israel. So look where his heart is, even right there in that story. Now he goes off to, to Midian. And interestingly, when he arrives, there was some shepherds giving uh, the woman that would become his wife uh, a hard time. And he drove them away, drove the shepherds away from the well. Now, as I mentioned when I was preaching on that passage, okay, there are a plural number of shepherds. Alright? And these guys were shepherds, not white-collar office workers who, you know, had no calluses on their hands and no muscles to speak of. These guys were shepherds. 
that were out there in the heat of the day, in the chill of the night, probably as strong as an ox, each one of them. Strong, calloused hands, manly guys. And here they are basically mistreating these women at the well. And in comes this stranger, singular, right? And drives these guys away and rescues the women from their hands. Listen, Moses must have been a pretty imposing figure if he was able to drive all of these shepherds away. Because remember, they didn't know him from Adam. So they had no respect that he was maybe one of Pharaoh's household and they weren't just respecting his office or his station. This was just an act of pure either, either intimidation or actually physical altercation in which Moses maybe knocked out one or two of these guys and the rest ran. Moses was probably something like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Seriously, he was probably a pretty imposing guy. This is, I mean, this is inference, but when you just look at what he did, he killed an Egyptian taskmaster who was probably armed with his bare hands, right? And then drove all these shepherds away from the well. Moses was serious business, right? But again, look at what he does. First thing is he gets to Midian. He walks up upon this situation of injustice where there are people being mistreated and he immediately inserts himself in a strange foreign land when he's here by himself. Look at, again, where his heart is at from the beginning, right? He goes out to Midian. It seems that at some point he came to know the Lord in a saving way. And the Lord commissions him, of course, to return to Egypt. And so he, he does return to Egypt. And you might remember many, many, many years later, this is not part of the Moses narrative, but many, many years later, when young David stands before Saul and he's explaining why he should be allowed to go fight Goliath. He says this, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. So David was a shepherd. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Listen, dealing with lions and tigers and bears, oh my, is part and parcel of being a shepherd. And Moses, by this time, has shown that he's ready to grab someone by the beard and strike them and kill them. Alright? Moses is serious business. And now he stands with the commission of Yahweh before Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. He snatches the people of Israel from the bear's mouth, so to speak. Now, I would like to say that if I had a shepherd like this, I would never grumble. I would be like, yes, we got Moses. He's on our side. Look who, look who is at the, the head of this flock. Look who is at the helm. Moses. The original rock. <laughs> but 
time and time and time and time and time and time again. The people of Israel grumble and sin and rebel and so on and so forth. And Moses does get frustrated with them. In Numbers 11, verses 11 to 15, we read Moses saying to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? In other words, these aren't my kids. Why should I have to take care of them? I didn't give birth to them. They're not my kids. Why should I be responsible for them? This is what he's saying to the Lord, right? says, where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. In other words, if you love me, Lord, just shoot me. Put me out of my misery. Because this is brutal, leaving these people. Moses did get frustrated with these people. Moses, obviously, I mean, we know he sinned in the matter of Meribah because the Lord is saying that he's about to be gathered to his people because of his sin at Meribah. We see also here in Numbers 11 that he was really frustrated with these people on this occasion, so much so that he actually wanted to just be put out of his misery. But, that being said, time and time and time and time again, He's constantly putting the best interests of the people over his own. On a regular basis, we read it over and over and over again. Even his own sister and brother oppose him. And the Lord strikes Miriam with leprosy. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. Please. This is the kind of guy that he is. Even though he's frustrated with the people he leads, even though he's frustrated with their sin against him and their rebellion against his rightful leadership. Constantly when push comes to shove, Moses is the kind of guy that puts their interests ahead of his own. In chapter 14, God says, I will strike them with pestilence, this is the whole nation, and disinherit them, and I will make you of, of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Like I told you when I preached on that passage, if that was me, I'd probably be like, well, if you insist. <laughs> Most of us would by that time. Because he had just, they had been so ungrateful and just had been grumbling, just making Moses' life so difficult and so miserable. I mean, this is the Lord saying, hey, listen, it's okay. If I, if I kill them and start over with you, we could do that. Look, a lot of people would probably take the Lord up on that suggestion. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard, O Lord, that you are in the midst of this people, etc., etc. And then he says in verse 19 of chapter 14, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt till now. Here's Moses focused on the glory of God and the good of God's people as opposed to building his own dynasty, so to speak. 
Moses is certainly he's a sinner. At times we see him in the wrong. We see him especially frustrated. But he's constantly putting the best interests of the people over his own. And in Numbers 11, uh, which was that part where he says, these are not my kids. I can't deal with this. I can't carry this burden. The Lord says, gather for me 70 of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people. And basically they will be commissioned to help share the load and so on and so forth. So, so what happens is God doesn't kill Moses. God sends other guys to help Moses with his work. And Moses perseveres in his work with this strategy that the Lord has put in place to mitigate against his weakness. Moses finishes his course caring for these people all the way till he goes up the mountain to die. There is no point where Moses stops shepherding these people. There's no bridge too far where Moses says, all right, enough's enough, I don't care about these guys anymore. We see that Moses is, in a very real sense, a good shepherd. In a very real sense, a good shepherd. Moses was not exactly like a pastor of a church. He was a leader of the old covenant people of Israel, which was a theocratic nation state and not exactly the same thing as a new covenant church. But to have a pastor that would just constantly persevere and plod on and bear with the sins of the congregation and constantly think of the glory of God and constantly think of the best interests of the church and constantly put the well-being of the flock above his own uh, reputation and dynasty building and whatnot. To have a shepherd like that would be a tremendous blessing. John chapter 10, Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Look, is Moses more like a hired hand or is Moses more like a good shepherd? The answer is abundantly clear. Moses is a lot more like a good shepherd than a hired hand. But though he was a good shepherd, he was a mortal shepherd. Let's consider, after reviewing Moses' shepherding, let's consider here the inevitability of the death of Moses and the inevitability, by extension, of the death of all mortal shepherds. Look, we know from what Numbers 20 tells us that Moses was going to die before he gets into the promised land. In Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So we knew from that point onward, we knew that the death of Moses was inevitable before the people were brought into the promised land. Right? But even if the Lord hadn't said that, and even if the Lord had allowed Moses to take them across the Jordan and 
through Jericho into the promised land, we know that eventually Moses would die. We know that Moses is not here among us today, just an ancient man. Obviously, Moses was going to die at some point. And listen, every mere man dies. Men die. Which means every shepherd dies. Every hired hand dies. And every good shepherd dies. And when a good shepherd dies, it will always be hard. How do you think the people of Israel felt when it settled in that Moses was gone? I mean, we know from what we read that Joshua replaced him and that was a blessing and so on and so forth. But surely, there would have been a sense that there was a real loss in Israel when Moses went up on that mountain and never came down. Look, there is a time coming when every good shepherd will go up a mountain and not come down. No matter how long someone serves, there is a time when their service will be ended. And it will be hard if the man was a good shepherd. Perhaps a church would have a good shepherd who would lead a whole generation all the way home. I think of Jeff Thomas, the author of the book that the ladies will be studying next. You could have it all. He, he's still alive. He hasn't, he hasn't gone up a mountain and not come down as yet. Thank God he's still among us. But he retired from his, his pastorate, his one and only pastorate, after 50 years of service in one church, and only one church, for 50 years of his life. He graduated seminary and started pastoring Alfred Place Baptist Church in Aberystwyth, Wales in 1965. And he retired from that post in 2015. Look, I know it's not exactly the same because he didn't die. But there would have been people there who were young adults when he started pastoring them. And then they died and he was still their pastor. That's how long he was there. Think about that. But the reality is, those people would have had children and those people would have had children. And at some point, Alfred Place Baptist Church, even if any one particular person doesn't have to say goodbye to Jeff Thomas, the church as a whole does eventually. Right? Let's say he hadn't retired from Alfred Place Baptist Church in 2015 and let's say he was still there. We'd know the writings on the wall, wouldn't we? And that at some point, Alfred Place Baptist Church is going to have to say goodbye to Jeffrey Thomas. Right? Because mortal shepherds die. And it will be hard when good shepherds, guys like Moses, guys like Jeff Thomas, die. It will be hard for whoever's still around, whether it's the first generation, whether it's the second generation or the grandchildren, it will be hard. And the better the shepherd, the bigger the hole. This is the reality 
that we have to face given the inevitability of the death of Moses and the inevitability of the death of all mortal shepherds. Well, what is to be done about this? I think on a human level, there are things that we can do to mitigate against the deleterious effects, the harm, the damage, the hole that will be left when a good shepherd moves on, whether by, whether by death or retirement or whatever. There are things that we can do to mitigate against these things on a human level. You remember way back in Exodus 11, no, Exodus 11 is not the right reference. Exodus 18, Jethro advised Moses to establish more leaders in Israel. And he did. In Numbers 11, the passage that I read for you earlier, the Lord says, gather 70 of the elders of Israel. And he did. So when Moses died, even if Joshua had not been appointed, the nation was not utterly without leadership. Even though there was a clear sense in which Moses was a prominent leader in Israel, it's not as if Israel was utterly leaderless apart from Moses. I think churches need to think particularly of plurality of elders and plurality of deacons to mitigate against the inevitability of the death of Moses, so to speak, and the death of all mortal shepherds. We've got to think about setting things up in such a way that even if there is a prominent man who is leading the church, that if he dies, the church is not utterly leaderless and up the creek without a paddle, as they say. But I think we also need to be thinking about discipling men in such a way to step into that prominent place of being a leader like Moses who was a singular figure amongst and amidst a plurality as well. As Moses, I think, rightly recognized there was a sense in which the people of Israel, though they had 70 elders appointed in Numbers 11, there was a sense in which without Moses they would have been sheep without a shepherd because Moses himself had been their shepherd. And there was that sense in which the, that gap of a primary leader who was um, at the helm, so to speak, would have left a real gap. And so Moses pleads and intercedes that the Lord would appoint a man. And God says, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man who is in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Well, why was Joshua chosen? Listen, it wasn't just out of nowhere. It wasn't a random pick. They didn't cast lots. Joshua was the heir apparent for a couple of reasons. If we go back to Numbers 11, in verse 28, we read this. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, stop them. 
This was the immaturity of Joshua at this point in Numbers chapter 11. My Lord, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Look what happened there. What was Joshua thinking about? He was thinking about the best interests of Moses. What will, what will happen if everybody has the same spirit as you? The same power of the Holy Spirit as you? Moses, you're going to be redundant. Your office is going to be in jeopardy. He was concerned about the threat that this posed to Moses' leadership. As Moses' assistant, it seems here that Joshua took it upon himself to really think about his supervisor's best interests within the organization, so to speak. But what does Moses say here? No, no, no. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. What is Moses' concern here? Again, as almost always, it's the best interests of the people. And so he's, he's chiding Joshua and showing Joshua, you got this all wrong. Leadership is not about me and my best interests. Leadership is about the best interests of the people. And if the Lord is putting the Holy Spirit on other people, that is a wonderful thing that we should be celebrating and not trying to stop. What I want to show you, this is an instance and an example of discipleship happening here. Moses working with a man, not to, not to, Moses was not trying to box other people out of his role and hang on to the role for himself. What Moses was actually trying to do was develop other people for this role. Joshua himself, as well as these other 70 elders. Moses welcomed other men to lead the people of Israel. And in Exodus 33 and verse 11, we read this. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant... Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. This was the tent of meeting where Moses would go and meet with the Lord. Moses had a face-to-face relationship with Yahweh. There was a appropriate reverence and sobriety attached to that relationship, but there was also a wonderful intimacy and familiarity which Moses had with the Lord. And as Moses' assistant, Joshua wasn't put off from having a relationship with Yahweh by the nature of Moses' relationship with Yahweh. Did I say that right? Joshua wasn't put off having a relationship with Yahweh based on the nature of Moses' relationship with Yahweh. But rather what Joshua was able to observe about Moses' relationship with Yahweh made him want to linger at the tent of meeting even after Moses had left. You see what's happening there? This is like a dad taking his son and kneeling at the couch 
and praying to the Lord and after the father gets up the son just stays there and keeps praying something like that is what is going on here Moses spoke to the Lord face to face and when Moses was done Joshua didn't want to leave you see the effect here of Moses taking Joshua under his wing and leading him to this kind of relationship with Yahweh the God of Israel what, I wanted, what I'm trying to show you in these examples is that the selection of Joshua wasn't out of nowhere. Moses had been preparing Joshua for this role. There was, in that sense, some sort of succession planning in place. I think churches need to think about plurality, but they also need to recognize that not every, not every elder is necessarily gifted or suited or called or willing or available to serve in a vocational staff capacity the way that um, often a church calls a pastor or a couple of pastors to serve sort of in a primary way among the eldership of the church I think that we need to reckon with the inevitability of the death of Moses and the death of all mortal shepherds. The fact that even good shepherds are not going to be here with us forever. And we need to mitigate. What we see the Lord doing and Moses doing in this passage is mitigating by establishing plurality and by discipling other men to come along and to walk in that same path and to function in that same capacity as Moses himself had done. That's one application of what we see happening here, but there's more that we need to do in response to or with respect to the inevitability of the death of Moses and all mortal shepherds. And this is, I think, more important, if I can say that without negating all that I've just said. It's not, it's not a either or, it's a both and. But even though it's a both and, it's, uh, what I said was important and this is more important. What we need to do also is we need to entrust the people of God to an immortal shepherd. I said to you that Moses went and snatched the people of Israel from Pharaoh, like David would snatch a sheep back from a bear or a lion and said, let my people go. But do you realize when he said, let my people go, do you realize that he was saying, thus says the Lord to you, Pharaoh, let my people go. Whose people was it then? The Lord's. You see, we're often, we're often presented with Moses saying, let my, Moses' people go. This is the way it's portrayed in films and in, in popular parlance and in our imaginations. We think of Moses saying, these are my Moses people. Let my people go. But in the biblical narrative, they are the Lord's people. And Moses goes and says, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. The people of Israel are Yahweh's people. Look at this passage again, Numbers 27. Verse 16, how does Moses 
start his request to the Lord. He says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over a congregation, etc., etc. What is that phrase? The God of the spirits of all flesh. I was talking with my boys this week about how we often, everyone does it. We have ways that we habitually address the Lord, titles that we address the Lord with in prayer. Some people say, our gracious Heavenly Father, and that's what they always say. Some people say, oh God. Some people say, dear Lord. Some people say, dear Father. But everyone has these patterns, these habits of titles that we use when we pray. If you record your prayers and listen back to them, you're going to find that you, you use the same titles almost every time that you pray. We all do it, myself included. A way that we can grow in prayer is that we can use titles that are actually relevant to what we're praying about. So, for example, if we're praying about God's care for His children, we could call Him Father. If we're speaking about His sovereignty over the events of the world, we could call Him Lord, and so on and so forth. It's not a coincidence here, and it's not, it's not just a, a, by force of habit that Moses calls God here the God of the spirits of all flesh. It's not because that's what Moses does in every prayer. He always just starts his prayers to the God of the spirits of all flesh. It's because there's something relevant about this title, this way of addressing God to what he is presenting to the Lord. He's asking the Lord that the people might not be sheep without a shepherd. So he's addressing the Lord as, you are the God of the spirits of all flesh. In other words, though, though I didn't conceive these children, though I didn't bear them, they're not my kids, there's a sense in which they are yours. You are the God of the spirits of all flesh. As Psalm 100 says, which we, we sang earlier, it is the Lord who has made us, we are His. Therefore, implicitly, we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. He did conceive us. He did give us birth. He did bring us forth. We are His kids. He has some responsibility, therefore, towards us. This is what Moses is appealing to. Lord, You are the God of the spirits of all flesh. I can't bear the thought that these people would be sheep without a shepherd. So I make a, a two-fold request. Appoint a man, but appoint a man because or, or consistent with the fact that you are the God of the spirits of all flesh. In other words, I care about these people that they might not be sheep without a shepherd. How much more you, the God of the spirits of all flesh, do you care for these people? who are yours, the, the sheep of your pasture. Hosea 11.1 1 is interpreted in a Christological way in Luke. But first and foremost, this verse refers to the Exodus. Hosea 11.1 1, the Lord says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Moses is appealing to the fact that these are your people. So, Moses is not merely relying on human leadership via a plurality and via the discipleship of Joshua. Moses is also facing his death. He's recognizing that he needs to make the earthly provisions for other mortal shepherds, but he also needs to entrust these people to an immortal shepherd. 1 Peter chapter 5 speaks of this twofold kind of shepherding, two planes that we need to think about shepherding. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So he's saying to the human shepherds, to the mortal shepherds, shepherd the flock of God. But then he says this in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now in the context, that's Jesus, the chief shepherd, right? So the fact that there is a chief shepherd doesn't negate the fact that there are under-shepherds. But likewise, the fact that there are under-shepherds doesn't negate the fact that there are chief shepherds. So this is not a both-and, or sorry, this is not an either-or, this is a both-and. Right? We don't say, well, we have a chief shepherd, so who needs Moses? We don't say, well, we have a chief shepherd, so who needs Jeff Thomas? Right? If he's retiring, oh well, who cares? We still have Jesus. Right? But at the same time, even as we work towards a plurality and we work towards discipleship so that in an earthly sense, with respect to mortal shepherds, the people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Even at the same time, we do have to recognize. But in it all and through it all, there is a chief shepherd. And we do have Jesus. And whatever success we may meet with, with respect to establishing a plurality, with respect to discipling man to serve vocationally in the church in a full-time capacity, with whatever success we meet with or fail to meet with on that level, we have to remember, this is Jesus' church. It belongs ultimately to Him. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And whatever may happen on a human level with human shepherds, we have to remember what Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Under shepherds die. Every one of them. Under shepherds die. Or they retire. Or they transition into a new role. Or, we know it, sometimes they fail morally and disqualify themselves. For various reasons, under shepherds inevitably and eventually cease to serve in the capacity in which they once did. We have to reckon reckon with that inevitability. So let us do the human things and work towards making sure we have the under shepherds so that God's people may not be like sheep 
without a shepherd. But at the same time, in it all and through it all, let's not be let's not reduce this to a human enterprise, a merely human enterprise. Let's not negate the fact that the work of building the church is a spiritual enterprise and that there is a chief shepherd and that whatever success we meet with or fail to meet with with respect to providing under shepherds for the next generation that Jesus is ultimately at the helm and will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail God in the person of Christ is our chief shepherd and even if Moses goes up a mountain and never comes down God in Christ will lead us all the way to the promised land.